checking out college football on the West Coast. This is Get Off My Pylon, a look at the Pac-12 and more. Part of the College Gridiron Coast to Coast Podcast Network, here's your host, Matt Zemmer. Welcome to the Get Off My Pylon College Football Podcast, part of the College Football Coast to Coast Podcast Network. You want to find the link to the feed for all of our podcasts in the College Football Coast to Coast Network at Red Circle. Uh, this podcast, Get Off My Pylon, we, we cover college football in the West, mostly Pac-12, also a little Mountain West. So this week, though, we have to go to the state of Florida and we have to go to the SEC. You know, we have uh, Oregon, Georgia. And we have Utah, Florida. So that's under the, the umbrella of what we're covering here at Get Off My Pylon in week one of the 2022 college football season. We have a great guest to help us uh, dig into this Utah, Florida game in the swamp. David Waters, you can find him on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. He's the host of the excellent Gators Breakdown show. You can find it at YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast, getting the finest quality insight into the Florida Gators. So David, as we welcome you to the Get Off My Pylon College Football Podcast, I think a good opening question on Utah, Florida is this. You know, Florida could have played other teams in the top 10, could have scheduled other teams aspirationally uh, out of conference in week one, but it landed on Utah. Now you compare that to say Alabama, you know, obviously, you know, an easier opponent than Alabama, an easier opponent than Ohio State. Um, but you know, what about other teams in the top 10? Like, it, how, what's the profile of Utah in terms of uh, how is this team either a good matchup for Florida, a bad matchup? Uh, is this the kind of team you think that Florida can exploit, or is this not the kind of team that you want to play in week one? What, what are your thoughts on that general question? Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I do think there is a mixed bag there. You're not to maybe take an easy way out. But I mean, if you look at the top 10, there, there are tiers in college football. You look at the top, you got Alabama, you got Georgia, you got Ohio State. Maybe throw Clemson in there, too, just because of some recent history. But, you know, it's those four. And then after that, I just think you know, there, there's a there's a drop off in tears. I know some polls have Notre Dame number five. You know, is Notre, Notre Dame's nowhere near to me as good as those top four teams. So I think you can see that drop off from the, from the top four to the rest of the uh, top ten there. And you know, with Utah – you know, Florida doesn't get many big home games like this to, to, to start with. You know, in most years, it probably wouldn't be that big of a deal, but you are breaking, breaking in a new head coach in Billy Napier coming over from Louisiana, and he doesn't get to ease into a schedule at all. You know, Florida, uh, a, a, a head coach has not lost their opening game at Florida since 1979. Some of that and most of that is to do with Florida kind of opening up the season with some cupcakes, getting that real easy game work out some of the kinks and then hit the ground running, but doesn't have that luxury this year. And you got to hit the ground running when you're trying to install a new system, trying to install a new culture. Uh, so those things make it a bad matchup for Florida. But you look at the other side of it, and Florida still has a lot of talent. You know, when 24-7 comes out with their team talent composite, Florida's still going to be the second most talented team in the SEC East, but there is a transition period uh, with, with this team and this new head coach. But at the same time, how, how fast can Billy Napier get it to gel together? It won't be perfect, but can it gel fast enough with that talent to maybe out-athlete Utah? Because Utah is going to bring experience. Utah is going to bring a culture that they're used to. Whittingham's in his 18th year. Everybody kind of knows what to expect there. 
So no surprises really from Utah. Florida has an element of surprise. Florida has an unknown uh, that you may, may can work in their advantage a bit. So it, it is a catch-22. There's not a lot of film on what Billy Napier and Florida are going to do, but at the same time, there's this transition, and it's really hard to pinpoint, really hard to predict, you know, what happened, what can happen in the transition year. So it is a, it's a good matchup for Florida in some ways, just based on athletic ability and a recruiting profile, but a bad matchup in a lot of ways just because of, you know, the, the, the experience and the culture Whittingham has built at Utah for 18 seasons now. So, David, uh, you know, obviously a focal point of this game, Anthony Richardson and, you know, Dan Mullen was able to get the most out of Kyle Trask. He was not able to get the most out of Emory Jones. Now, you know, Emory Jones transferred to Arizona State. So now, you know, this is Anthony Richardson's offense. And I think uh, with, you know, Billy Napier coming in, new head coach, new quarterback coach relationship, I think an obvious tension point not just for the in this game, but really for the whole Florida season in 2022 is striking the balance between, you know, allowing Richardson's natural athletic gifts to just spill out and, and become, you know, productive, you know, run free, uh, you know, be creative, just allow your playmaking talent and, and creative instincts to, to go wild versus making the right read, being disciplined, staying within the system. What do you think is the approach that uh, Napier needs to uh, find in this first game against Utah? You know, do you do you stress the creativity? Do you stress the discipline? What what things are going to go into a recipe for uh, success for Florida's offense under Anthony Richardson? Yeah, we we saw both those things last year with Anthony Richardson. We saw the potential. We saw eighty yard runs. We saw throws on the run. That would go for, you know, where he would just wing it and throw the ball 40, 50 yards in the air for completion along the sideline. And we saw the potential, but at the same time, with that inexperience, we saw the turnover, uh, you know, being turnover prone, especially in clutch situations sometimes in, in ball games. But he, he admitted last year, he's like, look, I knew my time was limited. I probably tried to do too much, try to impress too much. Uh, so Billy Napier walks in, and a lot of this, with what you can do with Anthony Richardson may depend on, you know, how Billy Napier feels about what he walks into with this Florida roster. And we know he loved to run the ball. We know he brought this physical style of play to Louisiana. When you go to Florida, and Florida has a very experienced offensive line. Florida has a deep running back room. It wouldn't surprise me if he leans on that, what we saw at Louisiana, what we see at Florida. But he's also never had a quarterback like Anthony Richardson. No, you know, no, uh, no disrespect to Levi Lewis there at, at Louisiana in the last few years, but based on arm talent, based on the, the potential, the ceiling. We see Anthony Richardson right now some in, in some mock drafts going top five, going top ten in, in this coming up NFL draft, uh, you know, next year's NFL draft. So uh, some people see the potential there with Anthony Richardson. So does that allow Billy Napier to open it up a bit? And that's what, you know, going back to one of the previous points is, you know, these, the un, just not knowing really what to expect from this Gator offense. Can they rely on Anthony Richardson more? at the quarterback position more so than they relied on Levi Lewis at Louisiana? Or does Billy Napier walk into a situation with an experienced offensive line in a deep running back room and kind of continue what we saw at his previous stop in Louisiana? So I think Florida can kind of go both ways here. And if you look at the matchup with Utah, as hot as it's going to be, and the crowd that's going to be there, you know, Billy Napier can choose to maybe try and go four quarters and just pound it and pound it and pound it and see if Utah can hold up by the time the fourth quarter rolls around. But I think even with that, I still think there's room for that, but I think to get that crowd going, 
to get the the, the crowd going uh, for from a fever pitch that just doesn't stop. I think you allow Anthony Richardson to get more creative. I think you rely on him early on in the game to get that to, to, to get that crowd behind it to build some momentum, make Utah fight from behind because that's going to be a very tough situation crowd wise, uh, heat wise for Utah to maybe try and fight back if Florida gets up quick. Hey, Dave. Alex Blau here. You know, I think you you nailed a good point about that mystical, fantastical nature around the swamp, uh, and and especially around season openers. But uh, looking at the other side of the field, what do you think is going to be Florida's defensive key to success against Cam Rising? You have Tavion Thomas coming back in that Utah backfield. You have a solid tight end core that's remaining, uh, bringing some veterans back. What is Florida's keys to stopping the Utah offense, even though the defense is usually the side getting a lot of the credit? Yeah, it starts at the linebacker position for me. Florida gets back Ventro Miller, who basically missed all of last year. He's a leader, all SEC linebacker. You could tell Florida missed his leadership. Florida missed his physicality at, at the linebacker position last year. So you bring him back, and Florida's kind of thin at defensive tackle. You got Jervon Dexter along the the, the, the the defensive front, but there's not a lot proven behind him to maybe try and stop this you know, Utah ground attack and the use of the tight ends. And that's why I bring up the linebacker position. That really worries me for Florida in this matchup. You have Keith there at Utah, one of the best tight ends in the country, probably the best tight end in the Pac-12. He's going to get a lot of looks, I believe, try and create some mismatches. And Florida linebackers, including Ventro Miller, have struggled in, in, in pass coverage uh, the, the last few years. And, you know, can you create a balance on the offense if you're Utah to keep those linebackers guessing? Does Florida have to bring his safety in the box now and maybe also help out with tight end coverage as well? So uh, I really think that the matchup of Florida's linebackers, you're trying to maybe make up for – some shortcomings up front, but also have to keep an eye on Cam Rising, maybe spy him. We, we saw him play some – we, we have seen him have some nice plays with, with his legs. He can hurt you there. So far as linebackers go, I have to play really disciplined. But at that same time, have to worry about a quarterback that can run, have to worry about a 1,000-yard back, have to worry about one of the best tight ends in the country. So there's a lot of responsibility for this Florida linebacker group. So, you know, David, you've mentioned that you know, the weather uh, could be a factor that, you know, Utah does not play in weather such as what it's going to encounter or what it's likely to encounter in Gainesville uh, for this game, you know, very beginning of September. Uh, and, and you mentioned the need to wear down Utah, you know, over the course of a four quarter game. But you also mentioned the need to get a lead early because, you know, Utah is a very patient team. It's a very methodical team. That's its approach on offense. It's not a team that is built to come back from a 14 point deficit. Now, I mean, it has some weapons on offense. So like it's certainly within the ability of the team to mount a comeback, but it's not like the, you know, they don't just fling it around the ballpark uh, to uh, borrow from a former Gator legend, Steve Spurrier. Um, that's not the way Utah plays. So you have a tension point here between, you know, wear down Utah over 60 minutes, but also get the lead so that you can make Utah's offense a little more one-dimensional. So how does Florida strike that balance in terms of play mixture, in terms of tempo, uh, specifically in the first half, first and, and even more specifically, the first quarter? You know, be creative, but also try to establish a physical presence 
Is there a play or a package or a, or a specific matchup that you think Florida's offense uh, can exploit to get, you know, kind of the mixture of what it wants potency, but also physicality so that it can kind of check multiple boxes against the youths. Yeah. I think that means probably a lot of RPO early for Anthony Richardson and, and let him decide if he wants to, or, or and, and maybe can have the ability to run past in, in the same play because he is explosive uh, on the ground. And, you know, he, he is a, a complete package, but a lot more consistency. So we need to see consistency. But to, to answer your question, I really do think you try and start out pretty fast if you're Florida. But, you know, can Anthony Richardson handle that? You know, these – we saw all across college football this past weekend, these week zero games, these first drives, these teams are scoring. But what do you do after that? You know, so Florida – Right now, and just like a lot of these teams we saw and a lot of these teams we're going to see this weekend, you've had, you know, weeks to get this first set of plays in your arsenal and and script a lot of plays toward the beginning of the game. So, you know, that's going to be a point for Florida is, all right, let's script some things. Let's, let's see what we've seen on film from Utah uh, the, you know, last year. Let's study their defense and what can we take advantage of. And I really do think it's going to be Richardson and the RPO allowing him to use his legs if he wants and needs to, but also, you know, you, you go, go through the passing game and see what you can get out, out of an explosive uh, set of receivers starting with Ricky Pearsall. I think Florida has some speed, but it's just how much speed. And they had to go to the transfer portal. And you bought, you, and you guys, you know, being there out West and maybe more familiar with Ricky Pearsall than, than we are, but that was the need for Florida to go get the type of speed that Ricky Pearsall brings to the table. Now, is he just going to be this? I, I'm not sure if Florida's going to have a true number one receiver, but they had to get somebody with that type that can take a screen pass 60 yards, that can catch a, a slant over the middle, make one guy miss, and he's off to the races. So I think go RPO with Anthony Richardson and try to find a way to get Ricky Pearsall involved in the game early as well because he's going to be one of the fastest players on the field Saturday night. You know, with Utah having to replace Devin Lloyd and Sewell at the linebacker position, I like the RPO approach, try to get them uncomfortable, confuse them a little bit. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, I do believe the replacement for those guys is a transfer from Florida, right? Uh, <laughs> Mohamed Diab Diabate? Yeah. Yep, Diabate, yep. Diabate, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, is, is he going to be able to confuse him if he's been practicing with these guys for, you know, his entire collegiate career so far? I don't know. It's going to be it's going to be an interesting little revenge game for him. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting storyline uh, with this game. And uh, for, for a credit to Mahmoud Diabate, now he wasn't the best linebacker at Florida, uh, but you know, he his freshman year, he was more of an edge rusher uh, there at Florida and then kind of transitioned to more of a true linebacker the last couple of seasons. Uh, a lot of tackles uh, there for, for, for Diabate, but a lot of that was plays coming to him. He didn't. It wasn't really an attacking style of linebacker, uh, you know, but credit to him because I, I give it to the Florida players at the same time with this new defense. They get a clean slate for me. You know, Todd Grantham ruined this Gator defense. D didn't seem like he had a plan. There was no very little cohesion, very, a lot of miscommunication before the snaps and just being out of position as a whole in the defense. So if I'm willing to give these current Florida players a blank slate in the new defense, I've got to give the same to Mamou Diabate and him going to Utah with a new coaching staff and seeing they can unlock something with him. Uh, Utah released their depth chart on Monday, and it does have Mamou Diabate as a starter there for, for, for the linebacker core. 
at Utah, and you know, he's not going to be a Devin Lloyd, but you know, does he need to be? And not many people are going to be a Devin Lloyd. That's one of, if not the program's best linebacker uh, in, in history there at Utah. So Mama Diabate has a lot of responsibility uh, there, and I do wonder how much of a change of scenery, uh, a new scheme, new teaching goes along with, with Diabate. He's pretty fast, but really showed um, uh, too many times – the um, not having the ability to shed blocks and look linebackers an instinctual position. And as I said, he kind of had to learn to play linebacker at the college level uh, dating back to the 2020 season uh, there in, in the last couple of years. And Florida's defense has been very, very subpar of the last couple of years. And some of that is to do with Diabate and having to fit him in at linebacker. Florida didn't have a lot of true linebackers to try to fit some guys in Diabate being one of them. Uh, but now, with the change of scenery, I think it can do him some good. All right, David, before we let you go, we just want to give you a chance to promote what you're doing at Gators Breakdown. Obviously, a very big week, a very busy week for you and, and, and Gators Breakdown. Just tell us what you have planned so that uh, our listeners uh, can go to Gators Breakdown. Yeah, it's a big week, of, uh, of course, coming up. Billy Napier had his Monday press conference. So we'll, we'll speak of that. We'll speak about that and what he had to say about Utah and uh, every, everything that goes along that Florida player speaking as well. Uh, that'll be early part in the week. And then midweek, uh, we'll have a kind of our big game preview. Uh, so if you want to look at it from a Gator perspective, uh, that episode will probably be out sometime on Wednesday. So uh, a lot of good Florida, Utah talk, talk coming up on Gators Breakdown. Well, David, uh, we know you have a lot of commitments. Thanks for giving of your time and joining us here on the Get Off My Pile on College Football Podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, David. All right, so as we continue with our week one preview show here on Get Off My Pylon, uh, we move to the other big Pac-12 versus SEC game of the week, and that is the Oregon Ducks uh, against the Georgia Bulldogs. And we have Dan Lanning going to Eugene as the head coach of the Ducks, his first year as a major college head coach, and he's going against his mentor, his former boss, Kirby Smart in Georgia. Lanning, of course, was hired by Oregon last December. He continued to coach Georgia in the college football playoff semifinals and national title game. He helped Kirby Smart win Georgia's first national title since 1980. And then in week one, who does he play? Georgia. So Alex, uh, you know, your, your overview on this particular game. Yeah, what a storyline, especially for Dan Lanning's opening. I was personally a big fan of the hire I'm not gonna lie I, I prefer offensive minded guys which he's not but he's smart defensive mind he's clearly good with players it's gonna help with recruiting he's taking over a powerhouse out in the west um you know I I'm not sure if this is a great start for him it's a great storyline I'm not sure if it's really a great opponent so I'm not really sure how these teams match up when you look at them you know what you're getting from Georgia offensively defense you're assuming they have the power to to fill that void that was left by all their stars going pro and with Oregon it's kind of the opposite defense you kind of know what you're getting yourself into but the offense is a lot of question marks we know the presumed starter is hopefully going to be Bo Nix I mean the amount of money he's getting paid you would assume freshman Ty Thompson looks nice but I I think it's going to be Bo Nix and then it's a question of you know who is the running back who's going to make those big plays hopefully they're going to have a tight end that can bloom and actually start to break out uh 
but I, I don't know how it really matches up with this powerhouse of a Georgia SEC team. Well, and Alex, you know, an, an obvious point, the plot point, not just all the new dimensions of the matchup and, of course, teacher versus student, but also, you know, Bo Nix, the Oregon quarterback, of course, he's a transfer from Auburn. So he's very familiar uh, with Kirby Smart's uh, Georgia defense. And also Kenny Dillingham, the Oregon offensive coordinator, he worked with uh, Nix as a position coach. He was an offensive coordinator, but he was the position coach. Uh, at Auburn before he went to Florida State to join Mike Norvell's staff. Uh, then Lanning pulls him uh, to Eugene. So Dillingham also, you know, has done film study of Kirby Smart's defense, you know, years before uh, this this week in this particular offseason. So in terms of that particular matchup, familiarity on both sides, what, what are some of the, the plot points or like the games within the game that you see evolving uh, it, it, when Oregon has the ball and, and, and Georgia's on defense? Yeah, when Georgia's on defense, I think the big key is going to be attack those new starters on the defensive front and in that linebacker core. Uh, you know, if you can especially get Terrence Ferguson, he's a 6'6 sophomore tight end. If you can get him over the middle, kind of making plays over those new linebackers, if you can get Byron Cardwell, to see those monster games like we saw at the end of the year against Washington State and against the Buffs, get that consistency rushing and attacking that group up front. And maybe you can open up, because I think if you look at the UGA secondary and those DBs, man, that is a tough group. And they're exactly the same group that won that national championship. Even have Kiki Ringo, the guy who iced it for the whole team. Uh, I, I think the key to beating this UGA defense all is up front, whether it's that short over the middle plays attacking the linebackers or whether you can run it straight up the middle of that defensive front. As we shift to the other side of the ball, you know, so Stetson Bennett, you know, he caught, he caught so much grief last season. You know, was he the guy to bring Georgia the national title? And he was doubted at various points along the way. And, you know, the first half of that national championship game against Alabama, it wasn't great. And Alabama was carrying the play most of the way. But when the chips were down, when, when all the, uh, you know, for all the Tostitos, so to speak, in the fourth quarter, when everything was on the line, Stetson Bennett made a, a downfield throw that he's never going to forget, the play of his life. He delivered the goods for Kirby Smart in Georgia. So, you know, entering uh, week one of uh, this season as a defending national champion, you know, the, the outlook is very different surrounding Stetson Bennett and what he's able to achieve and how he is perceived uh, at Georgia. What what does Stetson Bennett need to be to need to be aware of when he looks at that Oregon defense and when he realizes that, hey, Dan Lanning is coaching that defense? He certainly saw how Dan Lanning operates. What do you think is kind of like the trap or if not necessarily the trap, just, you know, the thing that. Stetson Bennett and the Georgia offense really have to be vigilant about when they go up against the Oregon defense. Yeah, you know, I, I think Stetson Bennett, when you talk about Bo Nix and all the, all the film that people have on him, you also got to talk about all the film and how much this crew has watched Stetson Bennett. And I feel like Stetson Bennett, you know, as you mentioned, he didn't play great in the first half of that national championship. And I think the more film you get on him, you've seen where his ceiling kind of is and how close to it he's already at. So for him, I would I would be worried about, okay, 
what new element can I bring to my game that this guy hasn't seen before? Uh, and to me, maybe, you know, that's a little bit of mobility. Maybe it's not relying on that blanket of, uh, of Brock Brower so much. But when it comes to the Oregon defense specifically, I think you got to worry about that linebacker core of Noah Sewell and a healthy Justin Flo because those guys, man, that could be the best linebacking core in the West of football. I mean, at the ends, you do have people who need to step up for Kevin, uh, not Kevin, uh, Kayvon Thibodeau. Presence is definitely missed in New York. You know, hopefully he's okay. Uh, and the DBs on Oregon worry me, so I really think it starts from that leadership in the middle of Noah Sewell and a healthy Justin Flo. Uh, but Matt, what do you think? Do you think that the Georgia offense, is there anything new stats and Bennett can bring to his game? Well, I think, mean, you know, mobility and being able to kind of scramble, make plays outside the pocket. I mean, Stetson Bennett can scoop, you know, he, I think that's one of the more underrated aspects of his game. I mean, and I think that, you know, the people at Georgia notice that they appreciate that, but, but uh, you know, the focus last year, I think, you know, went to Stetson Bennett's passing ability and how, you know, not ready for prime time uh, Bennett was in terms of being like a downfield passer or being able to make that big NFL throw 30, 40 yards down the field. But because he is mobile in the pocket, because he's kind of slippery and because, you know, he didn't give up on plays, he was able to do more than a lot of quarterbacks who are, you know, just pure pocket passers or chained to the pocket. I think that's where Stetson Bennett's game does get underrated a little bit that, you know, he, he is resourceful that when you take away the first read and you take away the first option, I think he can, you know, he does have a plan B most of the time and he didn't make too many huge mistakes. Uh, so, you know, I think that really in many ways, Stetson Bennett should go into this game thinking, you know what? I don't have to be the hero. Like it all worked out last year. And it's because I didn't overextend. I didn't try to do more than what I was capable of. Now that he's a national champion, you know, he could puff out his chest, Alex, right? You know, he could think, hey, oh, I'm, I'm the dude now. Like, I have a ring on my finger. I'm a champion. And it could lead him to do more than, than what he think, what he's actually capable of. And you, yeah, you mentioned it, it Bowers. Could. You mentioned Bowers. Like, that guy is going to get a, a big, fat paycheck on Sunday, like he, he's going to be an absolute stud oh, yeah. uh, at, in the pros. Uh, and so, you know, you, I think you're right in saying that, you know, hey, it's, it's going to be a real priority for Georgia to develop uh, a, a second option uh, around Bowers, but you certainly want to establish him, you know, early. Like, I think you, 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 you certainly want to start there. Now, maybe Oregon commits so much attention to Bowers that another option will open up. And I'm sure that, uh, uh, Todd Monken, uh, the offensive coordinator for Georgia, is going to you know exploit what he thinks is going to be Oregon's over focus, over reliance on stopping Bowers to get other receivers open. So I'm sure there's going to be some design plays to take advantage of you know Oregon's tendencies. But you still want to make Bowers uh, a presence, maybe as a decoy, but you certainly want to feature him in the first quarter. Uh, maybe you're throwing to him, but maybe you're just drawing attention to him in the play design so that you free up uh, other options. So I think, you know, Georgia, Georgia should start this with kind of a bread and butter approach. In other words, do what works, do what you know is proven because 
hey, you know, Georgia is a 17, 18 point favorite in this game for a reason. And so Georgia is not the yeah. team that has to kind of play out of its style. It doesn't have to go beyond, you know, its normal framework, its normal boundaries, or at least not until Oregon throws a big uh, roundhouse punch. Uh, if Georgia can establish itself with, you know, just a bread and butter philosophy, hey, you don't have to get tricky. It's Oregon that's going to have to get tricky. So I think that really uh, summarizes the mindset for Georgia's approach and Stetson Bennett's approach on offense. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I just, I hope you're right about Stetson Bennett, but I hope he has to realize that it's not the exact same roster he had last year. You know, something is gonna, there's gonna have to be some sort of improvement or shift somewhere along the team. Absolutely. And I, and I would say that, you know, the, the, the Oregon linebacker matchup, like that is certainly when Stetson Bennett is dropping back to pass and he scans the field, like, he has to know where Oregon's linebackers are uh, at all times. That 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 is an absolute central key. All right. So anything else that we need to hit on with Oregon, Georgia, because you know, but the Bo Nix angle, the Dan Lanning angle, Kenny Dillingham angle, uh, Stetson Bennett. Um, you know, also, you know, this is basically a Georgia home game. You know, it's going to be in Atlanta. So uh, it's going to be in Atlanta. Do- Marcus Mariota is going to be an honorary captain. The yeah, team, and he's though. playing for the little Falcons. Atlanta, That's right. He's going to be there. Oregon. Absolutely. Giving them a little something to fight for. A- absolutely. But one thing to note is that, you know, some of these Oregon players, you know, they went into Columbus last year and they kicked Ohio State's butt up and down the field. So, you know, even though you have a new coach, um, you know, the holdovers from Mario Cristobal, like the, a number of the players on this team, uh, you know, know what it's like to go into a daunting road environment. So on, you know, on that score, on that front, you know, there is certainly going to be a real genuine belief, you know, fortified by actual experience and achievement. Uh, you know, it's not, a, it's not in theory. It's actually proven that a lot of these Oregon players can go into a big road environment and thrive. But, but the obvious difference is that the Ohio State 2021 defense was soft and you, you aren't likely to say that about uh georgia's defense you know so if you're no, oregon sir. in terms yeah so if you're oregon and you try to win this what amounts to a road game you know and, and the formula last year against ohio state was pounding the rock oregon state was able to dominate up front um you know how do you mix the ability to you know get quick strikes to you know trick the georgia defense because you're probably going to need to trick that defense at some point you probably aren't going to be able to drive 15 plays, 80 yards, just cramming it up the gut. You're going to need something creative at some point. But as you've said, you also have to test Georgia's strength because there are so many elite prospects who are now you know, in the NFL from that loaded uh, NFL draft class. So you know, you, there's, there's obviously a balance, but what do you think needs to be kind of like the first point of emphasis if you're, if you're Kenny Dillingham? Uh, trying to get a winning offensive game plan in this de facto road game. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. You did You did lose so many guys, Jordan Davis, Trayvon Walker, Nicobe Dean. I think they have a pretty good roster spot replacing those guys up front. You know, D.N. Jalen Carter is the potential to be that guy, another top pick. You have Zion Logue, who's 6'5", 300 pounds, behemoth. Uh, linebacker is trickier for Georgia to replace this year. 
So I think that is the target group. You first gotta make a little uncomfortable, get them second guessing themselves, and that'll open up a lot more ability to, to run the ball when you want, to throw short across the middle, to kind of spread them out. Um, for Oregon, though, it's a matter of who's going to step up and be the consistent, reliable guy. Because nobody that I can tell has a stern claim on being that guy in the Oregon offense. At least nobody from last year. It's a lot of new people. All right. So we've talked about the two featured games. You know, we had uh, David Waters on to talk about Utah, Florida. We've talked about Oregon, Georgia. So now let's just finish our show with a few overview segments. First, the Pac-12, then the Mountain West. Just give me your general overall plot points for the Pac-12 or like, you know, certain uh, aspects of the 2022 season that you're interested in. It could be, you know, rankings or, you know, kind of like the hierarchy of, of teams in the conference. Just yeah. what, what's, what's the Alex Blau bullet point overview of the Pac-12 season as you see it? I think so. I think there's three elite teams when you're really looking at it. I think you got the Utah Utes, the USC Trojans, and the Oregon Ducks. I think Oregon, the schedule just is not in their favor, especially starting early at Georgia. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if we see them just lose momentum quick, unfortunately. Uh, the OSU Beavers, I actually want to say, I think they could be a sleeper of a team. Last year, we saw them lay a beatdown on SC and Utah, along with UW. Uh, they got their QB back. Schedule doesn't really help them. But if they can get some just wild, unexpected underdog dubs like they did last year, OSU, I could see finishing the season ahead of teams like UCLA, um, even with UCLA's stellar QB play. Uh, is there anyone, Matt, that you think is going to be just real shockingly bad? Let me ask you a question, Matt. What is David Shaw doing in Stanford? Is he setting up a turnaround, or is 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 he kind of just aimlessly lost right now? Yeah, he pulled in a he pulled in a, a very good recruiting class. So in 2023, 2024, you should see Stanford being significantly better than it has been. Uh, but there was undeniably a period of rift. We also have to realize that the pandemic, you know, in terms of its effect on the Bay Area schools in particular, uh, football and basketball, like you know, because the COVID restrictions in those localities were more severe than anywhere else in the Pac-12 footprint, that really put a damper on both recruiting and transfer portal activities for those two schools, football and hoops. And so David Shaw was, was living under the limitations of that. And so that, you know, like certainly within the, the, the last two years, that's been a problem at Stanford. Now you could say that the program, you know, made the Pac-12 title game in 2017, and then we saw erosion in 2018 and 19, that felt more like, you know, it was an amazing run from 2011 through 2017, building on what Jim Harbaugh did. And it was inevitable that at some point the air was going to go out of the balloon. But then the last few years have been hmm. a little the bit Andrew more about the pandemic. Catholic. Last few years have been a little bit more about the pandemic, but he has that good recruiting class. And he does have Tanner McKee. And if the offensive line can be healthy, which it wasn't for, for much of last year, you know, Stanford has a chance to have a decent offense. Now, an obvious uh, plot point related to Stanford in the workings of the Pac-12 season is that Lincoln Riley's first ever Pac-12 game as USC head coach is at Stanford on the farm week two, September 10. I think it's going to be interesting to see whether that early season placement, USC and Stanford always play 
early in September. Um, you know, is that going to be a benefit or, or, or a deficit um, for either side? I'm inclined to think that Stanford, because it's so young, it's good for USC to get Stanford early. Now, you could say that, you know, USC is still going to be working out the kinks in its offense and will still have depth problems on the defensive line. That's true. But I don't think Stanford's going to be at max strength. I don't think that's going to be a, a well-oiled no. machine until later in the season. So I really think it's good for USC to get Stanford early on in 2022. Yep. I, I'm with you there. Uh, I think the Buffs, we could see a little bit of a turnaround after uh, – well, oh, sorry, not the Buffs, the Arizona Wildcats. Sorry, a little bit of a turnaround after only winning one of the last 17 games. Yikes. Yeah, where would, where, would uh, you peg, where would you peg Arizona in terms of the number of wins this season? I, I, I still think it's going to be an uphill battle. I think, I think maybe three. Uh, I think that five I think, I think, is a little bit optimistic just because – you know, the, the recruiting's the recruiting's there, but of course those recruits will need time to develop. And what, what's one of the laws of scheduling when you're a, a school in Arizona's position, you don't schedule North Dakota state. Like, like, gosh, you know, guys, please just schedule a different FCS program, not, you know, the team that's always winning the FCS championship. So I think, I well, think look, that's going to be a loss. And, and so I think I that Arizona, because of that, scheduling error and, and and just because you know the recruits are going to be young I, I don't think it's all going to come together this year I think next year that could be different like next year out Arizona could challenge for a bowl game but I think I, I'm not optimistic that the program is going to be able to win four or five games this year yeah yeah I mean I don't see them losing to the likes of a northern Arizona again no uh, like that like but, they should have scheduled NAU again this year yeah, probably. I, I feel like that would have been a nice little revenge game. Uh, but I see them squeaking out at least two wins, maybe. I could I could see them taking down a, a Colorado. Colorado, uh, the right? I think Colorado is going to be in the taking basement. down Cal Berkeley. Yeah, and Cal Berkeley just lost, lost Brett Johnson, uh, its best defensive player. So, I, you know, I, I, Cal – Colorado and Arizona, but that is clearly the bottom three in the Pac-12 this season. Couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and I, wait a minute, wait a minute. Arizona State have to include Herm Edwards' dumpster fire fire in Tempe. So the, really, those four: <sighs> Cal, Colorado, and the those, Arizona schools. Those are the bottom four in the Pac-12. I, 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 that's exactly how mine goes. I got Cal at twelve, Arizona Wildcats at eleven. Colorado Buffs at 10 and the ASU Sun Devils at nine. It's really kind of scary. I, I, here, I, I actually think Arizona might be, might be the ninth best team in the Pac-12, that there will be three teams worse than Arizona. That's very depressing. So wild. <laughs> wow. That is a, I mean, hey, no wonder the Big Ten is out here making moves. Exactly. What kind of exactly. State this conference is in. Exactly. All right. Let me ask you one other question on the Pac-12 before we close up with the Mountain West. Um, you know, so USC, Utah, Oregon, in some order, that's the top three. So Oregon State, Washington State, UCLA, like that's the, mm. those are the sleeper teams or like the, those are the teams that you wouldn't naturally logically pick to make the Pac-12 championship game, but they all could be like those dangerous floaters, those dangerous threats that maybe one of those three teams puts it all together, gets on a roll. Uh, what, you know, it, 
of those three teams, which one stands out? Which one do you think is best equipped, uh, you know, to, to challenge the top three and maybe shake up the Pac-12 this season? Yeah, I briefly, I briefly mentioned OSU uh, earlier in the show, talking about, you know, their, their crazy wins last year. Let me show a little attention towards Washington State, actually. You know, they got that new transfer, uh, the former incarnate Ward QB, Cameron Ward, kind of threw 47 touchdowns last season. And man is a monster. Sure, you know, they lost a few DBs. Their defense is looking a little, a little weak, a little thin. But if you have that firepower on the offense, it really shouldn't matter. If you can get into shootouts and you can outscore, offense can win games. Defense wins championships, but offense can win games. It's going to be fascinating to see. I I think that Oregon State is, you know, I think Oregon State is the more likely sleeper slash spoiler in the Pac-12 because Jonathan Smith has a proven formula. And so you don't have a coaching change the way you do at Washington State. Uh, and also that the Oregon State USC game in week four, that's one of the hinge point games of the whole Pac-12 season. Because if USC gets past that game, I think USC gets to 10 and two, is going to get to the Pac-12 championship game, is going to get to a New Year's Six bowl game. But we've seen USC seasons get crushed you know, their national championship hopes, uh, you know, top tier bowl game hopes get dashed on the rocks in Corvallis. Uh, we saw that in 2006 and 2008 in the Pete Carroll era. Um, so like better teams than this USC team uh, have lost uh, in research stadium. And so like that is a, a landmine game. And, and on the other side of that, if Oregon State is able to win that game, you know, then then the talk about the Beavers as a real threat to make the Pac-12 championship game will be real but that like that is the test that's the early season moment of truth uh and so if if Oregon State loses in that game you know then the focus shifts to Washington State which gets Oregon at home and that's been Pullman's been a tricky place for Oregon to win in in recent years so really you start with Oregon State hosting USC and if the Beavers win I think they then get into that lane as the team that can challenge uh, and busting up the top three in the Pac-12 championship game. But if Oregon State loses, then then Washington State will get its opportunity to make some noise this year. Yeah, I uh, those those UW and or not sorry Washington State and OSU. Those are my two big sleepers. I think they both could honestly uh, end the season ahead of UCLA. But I I don't see OSU taking down the Trojans in week two. I got us or week four. Sorry. USC fans certainly hope that that happens. All right, let's close the show with some Mountain West tidbits. I know that you've been uh, looking over that particular conference. And of course, you know, most of our shows here on Get Off My Pylon, it's going to be a diet of like 75, 80% Pac-12 and 20 to 25% Mountain West. Obviously, we'll be following the big stories in the Mountain West. So Alex Blau, what are your big plot points for Mountain West football entering 2022? Yeah, Mountain West, you know, week zero uh did take place last weekend and i gotta say the state of nevada took a lot of people's attention you had a qb doug brumfeld sophomore at unlv who balled we're talking four touchdowns only four incompletions zero interceptions and over 350 yards just creamed idaho state 52 to 21 they scored on all seven first half possessions of the game 
on the other side of the ball, Nevada's defense was unstoppable against New Mexico State. They got, took had five takeaways, four interceptions, and one fumble. Uh, big problem with that, though, is they only won the game 23-12, to 12, which brings up the questions as what's going on in the offense. They tried out two different QBs. Uh, Shane Illingsworth was 7 for 12, 51 yards. Nate Cox was 7 for 11 for 27 yards. So I'm not sure which is really the better. Uh, but Nevada clearly has some offensive issues. But their defense, man, what a performance. Uh, as Other than that, you know, I, uh, I think we saw Wyoming QB uh, Andrew Peasley, I believe, have one of the worst games I've seen. Uh, excluding Nathan Peterman and the pros. His first completion didn't come until the second quarter, and he was 5 for 20 for 30 yards to finish the game, uh, which is rough. And speaking of rough, uh, Hawaii made Vandy look awesome, which Vandy fans haven't seen in a few years. Uh, Hawaii gave up over 600 yards to the Vandy offense. Uh, so week zero, a lot of blowouts, a lot of excitement. Just glad to have football back, even if it's the Mountain West. Yeah, the one other thing I'd add about Mountain West in Week Zero, Utah State looked ugly against UConn. Yeah, uh, that offense looked terrible, and so maybe it's just the first game of the season and all the jitters and all the rust. That's entirely possible, and maybe UConn's a lot better than 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 we thought. But if you're a Utah State fan, you're, you're thinking, you know, if we go up against Boise State, if we go up against Air Force, if we go up against San Diego State. Man, we have, we have a lot of work to do in Logan with the Aggies. All right, Alex, first show in the books. Really thrilled to have you aboard as my co-host, my co-pilot uh, for this season here on the Get Off My Pylon College Football Podcast, part of the College Football Coast to Coast Network. Uh, you want to check out our feed on Red Circle for that. Uh, Alex, looking forward to our next show next week when we review First game of the Lincoln-Riley era at USC and also those two big showdowns, Oregon, Georgia, and Utah, Florida. Alex, so, so great to have you aboard. Matt, I can't wait. Thanks for doing it, man. All right. We will see you next week on the Get Off My Pylon College Football Podcast.